Good morning. Very happy to be able to share a message with you this morning. And my son Caleb's going to come up and read this scripture. So as Dave mentioned, Matthew 22. Hey guys, so this is Matthew 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said. We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, haven't you heard what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, 
How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thank you, Caleb. We're going to start with story time. Actually, I'm going to tell you an allegory. It's okay, I had to look up the definition too. An allegory is a story, a poem, or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. So for the sake of this story, I used to play basketball competitively. If you use the word competitively in basketball very loosely. Now one day, a young guy showed up for one of our games and he said he wanted to help our team. I was a bit indignant. How can you help our team, I asked. Who are you anyway? He looked at me kind of funny. Uh, I'm LeBron James, basketball star, you know, King James. I was skeptical. He smiled, picked up a ball. I gotta admit, he showed promise. Impressive skills. But was he really King James? I was not only skeptical, but I started to think, this is my team. If I let him play, he might end up taking over the team. I was more comfortable just keeping things the way they were. So I told him, thanks, but we're fine. You can just sit on the bench and watch. I'll never forget the look on his face. <laughs> that sounds kind of crazy, right? Who would leave arguably the best basketball player of all time, the greatest of all time, the king on the bench. Well, for the past several months, we've been looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew. We're 22 chapters in now, and so far we've found exactly zero references to Jesus' basketball skills. But what we have found is without question, he is the wisest, smartest, the most amazing person who has ever lived. Not only has he healed the sick, raised the dead, fed thousands with five loaves and two fish. He walked on water, but his teaching is astounding. And the way he's able to respond to the challenges of the religious leaders is remarkable. We see more of that today. Now, last week, Pastor Dave took us through the second half of chapter 21, where a number of religious leaders had confronted Jesus questioning his authority. Today's text continues that conversation, that showdown, between Jesus and these religious leaders. And the hot topic of the confrontation hinges on the question of understanding who God is and what he is about in the world. The big issue here is that these religious leaders simply assumed that because they were Israelites, they had the right religious and ethnic background. Not only that, they were the chief priests and elders. So of course, they're at the center of what God's up to, right? Well, God, or Jesus here was challenging those assumptions to the core. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a banquet for his son, a wedding banquet. This parable actually summarizes the entire Bible. God has been establishing his people, his kingdom, since the beginning. In uh, Genesis 22:18, God told Abraham that through his offspring, all nations on earth would be blessed because of Abraham's obedience. Now, unfortunately, obedience respect, or even attention to God wasn't necessarily commonplace among all the people of Israel. 
Despite God's repeated attempts to communicate the invitation, to get on board with what he was up to, many had ignored God's spokespeople, the prophets. And others had actually turned against them and killed these messengers of God. And now, Jesus is explaining to religious leaders that because they hadn't even RSVP'd, new messengers were sent out, as N.T. Wright puts it, to the wrong parts of town to tell everyone and anyone to come to the party. And they came in droves. We don't have to look far in Matthew's gospel to see who they were. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the riffraff, the nobodies, the people who thought they'd been forgotten. They were thrilled that God's message was for them after all. You see, these people had been looked down on by the Israelite elite who had determined that there was some certain code of conduct required before you'd be invited into the party. As I thought about this, it made me wonder, what about us today? Many of us here have been part of God's family for a while now. We've probably come to some level of understanding that we've been accepted into his family and welcomed because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But now we have to be careful that we don't adopt the attitude that those entitled Israelites were displaying. I know that for me personally, there have been times in my life that I felt quite deserving of God's acceptance, like I somehow I'd earned his favor through accomplishing some moral checklist. And I was also pretty dismissive of those who in my mind were these immoral sinners who I felt had no right to God's grace and no place in my church. Honestly, it breaks my heart to think of how bad an example I displayed and how wrong I actually was. But thankfully, Jesus got my attention and he's been continually working on me. He's changing me and my attitude toward others. And I can't look down on anyone. His invitation is for everyone, even those who we might think is undeserving. Think about who we might be withholding that invitation from. We, who have been freely given an invitation to God's wedding feast, need to be sharing that invitation with anyone and with everyone. Jesus loves everyone equally and unconditionally, in whatever level of brokenness an individual might find themselves in. And he can restore even the most broken person through his life-giving love. God himself opened the door to anyone who would receive and accept the invitation. Who are we to close it? But what about this dude who got forcibly removed from the party for not wearing the proper wedding clothes? What's with that? Well, N.T. Wright puts it this way. God's kingdom is a kingdom in which love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness reign unhindered. They are the clothes you need to wear for the wedding. If you refuse to put them on, you're saying that you don't want to stay at the party. Now, last week, we heard about Jesus' response when he found a fig tree that wasn't bearing any fruit. He cursed it, and it immediately withered. This fellow getting evicted from the wedding feast is similar. There, he was showing no signs that he had truly given his life over to God. It's so encouraging to see the transformation that happens in a person when they do turn their life over to God. Several years ago, I met a young man who started playing Saturday night church hockey with us. And as I got to know him, I recognized destructive tendencies in his life as he admitted to pornography and alcohol abuse. He was bitter towards some family members and he was battling depression. But he was open to coming to church with us. And over the next few months, as he turned his life, as he began to turn his life over to Jesus, the change was breathtaking. He told me of a decreasing desire towards those unhealthy habits. 
and how he was starting to forgive and to restore relationships. Increasing amounts of joy and love were obvious in him as he allowed the Spirit of God to change him. But was it that change that made him invited into God's family and God's kingdom? No, he was always invited. It was when he accepted the invitation that he was, and he was welcomed in. That's when the good fruit began to appear. He exchanged his unacceptable clothing for the wedding clothes that God provides through his spirit. Love, justice, truth, mercy, holiness. Back to our text in verse 15. Now at this point in the conversation, the religious leaders try to turn the tables on Jesus. They ask him whether or not he thinks it's right for the Israelites to pay this imperial tax that they felt was unfair. This question was designed to either get Jesus in big trouble with the Roman authorities or to cause many of his followers to turn their backs on him. Either way, the Pharisees probably would have been happy, but Jesus is much too smart to fall into their trap. Rather, he asks them, whose image is on the coin? Caesar's, they replied. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. An entire sermon could be preached on this section alone, and it has been. On your handout, I provided a URL for the very valuable Tim Keller sermon that I highly encourage each of you to take the time to watch and or listen to, but preferably you do that after I finish this sermon. When Jesus says to give Caesar to Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he suggests that there are two, Keller suggests that there are two kingdoms in place, the temporary kingdom of this world and the eternal kingdom of God. In the temporary kingdom of this world, there's power, success, comfort, and recognition are the primary values. And in the eternal kingdom of God, as we mentioned, features love, justice, truth, mercy, holiness. So when Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he does not allow us to ignore or discredit the government, even if it's not who we voted for. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But he's also steering us away from devoting our lives to this, the kingdom of this world. While we live in this world, we're not to embrace its values. Rather, we give to God what is God's. We embrace his values. You see, while the coins bear the image of the monarchy, we each bear the image of God. If we turn way back to the beginning of our Bibles, we see in Genesis 1.27 that God created mankind in his own image. That's right, each of us bear the image of God. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Yes, we need to show proper respect for the governing officials and the laws of our nation. We should pray for our leaders and be actively involved in becoming educated on the policies and principles that the different parties stand for. This is an election year after all. We should be aware of who's gonna best direct our country towards upholding what is important to God. But regardless of which party gets elected, it ultimately won't change the fact that power, success, recognition, and comfort will continue to be the key values in the kingdom of this world. As we've been looking at Jesus' life, nowhere do we see him hungry for power or success or recognition or comfort. Rather, in Philippians 2.7, we see that he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. And we are called to do the same. It's only when we prioritize his values that we affect real change. We, who bear the image of God, yep, that's all of us, are called to give to God what is God's. Yep, that's all of us. 
And we're going to jump down to verse 34. The Pharisees step up to the plate again, thinking that since Jesus is welcoming anyone into the party, he must not be familiar with the law of Moses that they've been misusing and abusing to ignore many of the invitees. So they send a legal expert to Jesus, and he's asked, what is the most important commandment? Which one is the greatest? His answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, as an equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So how are we to show God that we love him with all our heart and mind and soul? Reading the Bible and praying, singing him love songs? Well, that can definitely be part of it. But what about loving those who God loves so much that he sent his son to die for? Andy Stanley says, there's no point in trying to make peace with me if you've hurt one of my kids. You can buy me gifts, give me money, sing me songs, praise my name. There's nothing you can do for me to compensate for mistreating one of my kids. The best thing you can do for me is to show honor to my kids, to show love to them. And it's the same with God. To show God that we love him with all our heart, our soul, and mind requires that we love our neighbors as ourselves. So maybe you're thinking right now, which of my neighbors can I love? I have a neighbor who is one of the most generous and kind people I've ever met, and I find him very easy to love. But those aren't the only people that Jesus is calling us to love here. When Jesus says, love your neighbor, it's very extensive. The book of Matthew doesn't include the parable about the Good Samaritan. You can find that in Luke chapter 10. But let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. The Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. A Jew got beat up. Who came to help him? Not a Jew, but that's right, a Samaritan. A Jew would have been the last person a Samaritan would have wanted to help. But the Samaritan met basic human needs through deeds at an incredible sacrificial cost of time, effort, money, and quite possibly safety, and even his reputation, he helped meet the emotional, physical, financial, and medical needs of the person. And not because that person was in his inner circle, and not because all the cool kids were doing it, and not because he was going to be rewarded or repaid for his effort. Jesus says that's what loving our neighbor looks like. It's about putting the needs of others ahead of our own needs. We are called to be servants of God by serving those around us. Remember Beauty and the Beast? Life truly is so unnerving for a servant who's not serving. I know from personal experience that when I get focused on myself, I get miserable. But when when I turn my attention towards the needs of others, I come alive like Lumiere and Mrs. Potts and Cogsworth. Now this might seem rather obvious to you, but it took me a while to figure out that when I spend less time focused on my own wants and needs, I have more time to focus on the needs of others. When I spend less time, less money on myself, I have more money to spend on others. Imagine the impact that consistently practicing that kind of love will have on the world around us, on our friendships, our marriages and families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, the inner city, and yes, our church. So maybe it's those that we've been withholding love from, from, we've been holding God's invitation from, that we need to be stepping out and showing love to. Maybe it's the person whose sexual behavior doesn't align with God's design. 
Maybe the girl who's opted to have an abortion or someone who abuses drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's the person who's on the polar opposite of the political spectrum or the person who cut you off in traffic or someone who you feel unjustly treated by. When we want to show God that we love him with all our heart and soul and mind, those are the people that we need to love. Withholding love has a crippling effect and giving love has a rippling effect. How we respond today can greatly influence all of our tomorrows. And there are some practical ways that we've seen recently. We've seen this love in action. Two weeks ago, we sent 30, over 30 people up to Fort Providence, Northwest Territories, where they had a chance to meet face-to-face -face these kids from really challenging home situations. They got to represent Jesus to them, share his love, affect change. Last Friday, our youth group served burgers down at the Mustard Seed to over 60 people. And this past week, as we've already celebrated, we had over 150 kids here who were impacted as they learned about the love of Jesus and they built relationships. Next Sunday, as you've already heard, we're inviting our neighbor to a block party where we get a chance to show our community that we prioritize love and justice and truth and mercy and holiness. And eight weeks from today, we're starting a third service that could potentially be filled with those people in our lives that God has called us to share his invitation with, to share his love with. The religious leaders have been questioning Jesus' authority throughout this conversation, and he silenced them at every turn. They have nothing else to say. Now Jesus turns the tables back. He tells them exactly why he has the authority that he claims. In verse 41, Jesus asks the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Totally rhetorical questions. He quotes Psalm 110 as though they've never read it before or certainly haven't understood it. This coming king is not just King David's son. He's King David's loving leader. Jesus, in a subtle but clear way, is saying that he walks with God's own authority. He is, after all, God himself in the flesh, God with us, as Matthew had said. So the series, that, the series that we've been studying for most of this year is called Kingdom Come, and we need to understand what those religious leaders did not. Jesus' kingdom has come and is continuing to advance. King Jesus is who he claims to be, regardless of how you or I feel about it. In fact, what we think or believe about Jesus has zero effect on who Jesus actually is. As we mentioned earlier, Jesus is the wisest, most remarkable person that's ever walked the face of this earth. And whether we want to believe it or not, he's God. He's powerful, yet humble. He leads by serving. And he gave everything out of love for you and for me. Who else deserves to be our king? Who else deserves our authority? The question then is, how are we going to respond to him? If you haven't already let Jesus be your king, maybe you recognize that a desire for power or success or comfort or recognition is more of a priority in your life than a desire to see love and justice and truth, mercy and holiness. That was the case for those that Jesus had this conversation with, and Jesus called them out on it. They could have responded to Jesus that day and let him be their loving leader but many of them were too attached to the world's values. So instead, they conspired and manipulated the government to have Jesus crucified just a few days later. 
thinking that would solve the argument once and for all. But as we know, that kind of blew up in their face as three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and those who met the risen Savior were so amazed and so convinced that he is indeed King Jesus that they went on to write much of the New Testament, they started the church, and most of them lost their lives for sharing the invitation, for sharing his love. When someone predicts their own death, resurrection, and then actually pulls it off, that's the person that deserves my full attention, my devotion, and my obedience. So, if LeBron James wanted to lead your team, your basketball team, why would you leave him on the bench? Jesus, God's own son, wants to lead your life, your family, our church. He entered human history to invite you and I into the kingdom of God, the best party ever. We can't just leave him on the bench. We need to let him into our lives to give him the authority. Let Jesus be our king. Let him define what life is really about and let his grace enable us to live it out. I'd like to call the worship team forward now as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your deep desire to be in relationship with us. Thank you for your sacrifice that made it possible for us to accept the invitation to come in to your kingdom and that allow you to change us into those people that you want us to be, Lord, to clothe us. And Lord, we just, as we dwell on what you've been speaking to us, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to speak to our hearts, continue to lead us towards you. In Jesus' name.